Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, September 14th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, slogging through kernel logs on AWS, Kelly's mobile-first responsive redesign, self-documentation versus static docs for RESTful APIs, the future of web browsers on iOS, why I'm not a hypocrite on the Facebook native app thing, and the heartwarming story of a ragtag bunch of watermelon seeds who beat the odds and win the big game. (laughs) Sorry, that sounded funnier when I wrote it. Sit tight, the Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Hello. Good m- afternoon. <laughs> it's good m- afternoon. <laughs> How's it happy, going? Uh, it's going okay. Uh, and happy Programmers Day. What's the date? Um, it is celebrated. Apparently, I I just found out about this right now. Apparently, programmers have a holiday. It's celebrated on the 256th day of each year. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a date thing. That's funny. Like May the 4th be with you. Yeah. <laughs> 256th day. Yeah. Sweet. Take the day off. Yeah, I'd like to. Well, I've, I've spent all morning poking around inside your AWS account. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, if you get a bill. <laughs> Let me tell you, those AWS bills are starting to add up. <laughs> got like 10 instances, a bunch of RDS going on. Yeah, I started a new instance, but I stopped another one. So, Cool. Oh, you, uh, well, before we get into that, uh, it sounds like you have a bunch of stuff to talk about this week, including uh, a crazy bug, which is perhaps what you're alluding to. Yes, that is what I'm alluding to. Well, excellent. Um. Well, I suppose we could just jump right into the bug report. Uh, we could, or did you have something else? Um, no, not really. I'm just like mentally a little scrambled. Big training coming up tomorrow, and uh, people are registering at the last minute. So I've already sent out the connection information for most people, and then now I'm doing them one by one. <laughs> doing them one by one? Yeah. Well, hey, at least people are registering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not a million, but uh, you know, more than last time, so that's good. That's good. That's progress. Including... This is a little nerve-wracking, including a team from Google Google Developer Relations. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so it'll be interesting. That might not be the right team. It's a team from Google that, uh, uh, the Google Chrome team, is that what it is? It's something like horrifyingly nerve-wracking that I'm going to (laughs) be showing the Chrome developer tools to people from Google. Nice. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. So so I'm a little bit scrambled from that, So, but uh, that's all. It's just waffling a little. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yes, bug report. Bug reported up. Okay. Um this is this is more of a more of a system bug than a, a web app bug. But nonetheless it was interesting to track down. And I think I've got it. We'll we'll find out if it happens again. Well we'll know I was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um we have we have this API we've been been working on for a mobile app and right now we've got it on E C two instance for development and testing. And if you remember a while ago, we had an issue come up where the, um, oh, they were trying trying to make requests and uh, they were getting getting authentication errors despite having the cores headers sent and what have you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and remember at the time I came up and I, and I said, oh, it looked like 
I, I had I had found some some nginx processes that were getting killed, and you know I thought that was a problem, and I thought it was a conflict with passenger and and all this and that and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out to be something else that was that was just a red herring, and I just I kind of forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And here, but here the last I guess the last week or week week and a half we've had. Uh, you know, now that now that the API is getting a little more usage, we've had some instances where um, it would just processes would just up and die, and um, including the the SSH process. Even I couldn't even log into the box, but yet you would go to the uh, EC2 dashboard and look at the monitoring, and it would show you know resource usages near zero. Hmm. So it seemed very strange that you know, processes would be randomly dying like that. Right. And I I really didn't think it was a problem with the application because I couldn't I couldn't figure how it could be doing anything that could you know that could be causing processes outside of you know the app itself like the SSH process to to you know to get killed. Yeah, especially if the processor's like not not having that much usage. Yeah. It'd be one thing if you were like some kind of like crazy infinite loop that was pegging everything, but. Yeah, or if it or if it was getting hammered with traffic or anything like that. Mm. But um, last night I, you know, I had been talking, been thinking about, well, just I'll just redo the instance and all that. And but last night I got curious and I started digging through log files, and I started looking in the application log, you know, just in case there was an app problem. Maybe I would have something useful to learn from it there. Mm-hmm. And the error log, you'll be happy to know that the error log for the application was actually empty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I won't say it was empty. There were some old errors in it, but there were there were no new, new application errors in the log file. Right. So you know, I I couldn't I didn't know if that was good or bad because you know it's bad if there's errors that aren't getting logged, but on the other hand, it's, it's good if there are no errors. Right. It's always hard <laughs> to believe that there are none. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, then I then I went digging through the the Nginx logs. And I noticed there were some places again where that Nginx worker process was getting killed, hmm. and so I just I did some more digging. I ended up I went through went through some kernel, just went back through you know each level of log files until eventually I was staring at kernel logs, wondering what I was looking at. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it turned out what was happening is oh there's a there's a um, a program on the instance. It's called OOM Killer. It's, it's supposed to kill out of memory processes. Hmm. You know, it's supposed to kill processes when you start running out of memory. Whenever, whenever that Nginx process would hit about three megs in in memory utilization, which is is not large at all, mm-hmm. then the OOM Killer would just start randomly killing things, despite the fact that there were still lots of memory left. Huh. And I did some research on this, and it turns out that you know everything I could find on that said, well, it's a problem with memory allocation by the kernel. You know, the kernel's not allocating memory properly. Hmm. And I, you know, I thought that was really strange. And so I, you know, I did some things there. I went through and and looked at the at the mem info and slab info in the in proc and what have you, just to try and try and sort it out. And I couldn't really see anything that was using too much memory. Or that had an unusually large amount of memory allocated to it, mm-hmm. and so eventually, I just like I was digging around and I found you know I was looking through um, the the Zen log files, Xen Zen, the virtualization software that 
well, AWS and well, pretty much everyone uses. Mm-hmm. And I found in in there when the instance was first initialized, an error about a memory allocation error that had been or where it where it had skipped something due to a memory allocation error. Hmm. And so, you know, I I don't know if that's the problem. <laughs> it seems like it could be the problem. It seems. You know, for some reason, those processes processes are getting killed when there's lots of memory left. So, I mean, there's there's some kind of memory allocation error somewhere going on. That was that was the only thing I could find that that could be it. So, that I don't know. Crazy. And, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's nuts. So I ended up redoing redoing the instance this morning, mm-hmm. and I set it up, and I skipped. I skipped the RVM install this time, and you know I just just installed Ruby natively mm-hmm. because you know I had again when I back a, a few months ago when I was looking at the other problem, I found found some comments about uh, memory conflicts between RVM and and a particular version of Nginx and what have you. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just skip RVM. I did a native native Nginx install. Um, I did a Apache. Or sorry, I did a did a native Ruby install, Apache Passenger, and you know I I went with that now, and you know so far so good, but it's only been a, a couple of hours, so mm-hmm. I don't we'll cross cross our fingers and and see if that solves it. Huh? It'd be interesting to look at the um the uh, the kernel logs for this instance and see if that memory error allocation error is something that happens all the time because all of our instances are basically the same when they right. Uh, and it'd be just interesting to know if that happens all the time or if it really was a one-off type of wacky. wacky yeah, just thing. some random glitch in the matrix. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to take a look at it. I haven't had a chance to yet. I just got finished setting it up a little bit ago. But it's I, I definitely want to take a look and compare the two log files. Wow. Well, your log spelunker achievement is unlocked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I should, should get a badge. Exactly. Good Lord. It was an interesting process to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Drink. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't going to say it. You could probably use one after that. Yeah. So, geez. Well, that would be um, that would be quite the win if you figured that out. That was, yes. that, that was really, that issue with that uh, instance is was really dogging me in the back of my mind. Like, uh like what could be going on? Yeah, it's just like one of those things that you know all of the all of the instances that we spin up are essentially the same at, at first. So mm-hmm. something that is so core, something that appeared to be a very core problem, not an application problem, um, is alarming when you know you're trying to recommend AWS. For, you know, it's like oh my god, this stuff's so great, it's so easy, it's it's so robust, and then. You know, if one of them, we can't keep one up and running. It's yeah. it's a little alarming. And yeah, you and you and if you can't figure out what it is, you're kind of like, well, like you know, you're <laughs> you know, you're having a bad day when you start like the words clean reinstall start going through your mind. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what I ended up doing. I'm I'm really just hoping this was some kind of random glitch. I mean, you know, I've I've been using computers for years. We have a computer repair business downtown and you know you can dig around and look through log files and diagnose and troubleshoot but the fact is 
sometimes things just happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Edge case. Yeah. So, um, and there's probably an explanation for it somewhere, but we may never find it. So, I mean, I'm really hoping this is this is is the issue and that this resolves it because yeah it was it was starting to worry me because you know this this issue is or this instance was built from the same ami that we built other instances off of yeah and so you know i'm i'm relieved that it could just be a potential glitch in the initial you know, in the initial setup of the instance and not and you know not a, a problem with installed software right well yeah i mean it's like you said when stuff just happens it's just it's probably just a wacky glitch and it's not something that presumably would happen maybe even ever again so yeah well fingers crossed <coughs> yeah so that was that was how i spent last night and, and this morning <laughs> partay yes well that was a nice way to Roll into the fall, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's good. Good middle of the week. Dive into <laughs> low-level system logs. <laughs> God. Oh man. Well, on, My, the, on the polar opposite side of the fence, you also mentioned you had a redesign that you wanted. Oh to yes. Um, it's it's nothing major. I redesigned my personal site. Oh yeah. Yeah. And. I just when I went through it, I did. It's kind of the kind of the same approach I took for Barreau in terms of how I approached it. It was just on a much smaller scale because my site's much much simpler. Mm-hmm. But just just really, this time taking taking a, a very mobile first approach to the design, right? And, you know, mobile first progressive enhancement, and just just start from the small screen and build up. And I, you know, I just wanted to say that it's it's so much easier than trying to go the other way. I know it's people. <laughs> whenever I hear somebody say like responsive design's not worth the trouble, I'm like, I'm 100% guaranteed that they started at the desktop and they tried to work backwards. Work backwards. Yeah. And you just the CSS just doesn't work like that. It's additive. It's very mm-hmm. difficult to to remove stuff and override. I mean, you can override things, of course. But it's much easier when you're when you're just adding to the cascade and not trying to remove stuff from the cascade. Yeah, and it's, exactly. It's uh, it looks great. I just launched. I oh, just thank you. Pulled it up. Really, really like it. Scales down beautifully. Yeah, the the one I would had up previously, um, I didn't hate it, but the the sort of mobile version of it, it was, it it wasn't really designed to to look good on mobile. It was just designed to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and this one I I started, you know, paid more attention to the mobile design and then just went with start starting the CSS for mobile and then just building up from there. And and what I did was I, I started at the, you know, three twenty and then worked up through various mobile sizes to the de- desktop version and then I took took the many of the rules applied in the I guess the nine sixty version of the nine sixty media queries and just pulled those out into an IE style sheet. Ah. Yeah, I mean it's like I notice like a lot of uh, a lot of responsive sites sort of see two different patterns. One is that where it jumps across breaks, which is what yours is doing, mm-hmm. and then others where it's like so where it's so subtle that you almost can't see 
you're not aware of the changes as much. Like the Boston Globe site, they they change everything as they're so it's like a combination of a fluid grid and uh, media queries. Yeah. So they're changing everything from like um, like font sizes, like like continuously changing font sizes, like a million breakpoints, and uh, uh, increasing. This is an this is a one that you may have considered or I don't know. But uh, when they scroll down to what must be uh, a small screen, like a 320 type size, then they uh, sort of invisibly make the um, touch targets larger mm -hmm. so that like even regular links are bigger than they look. Uh, it's but I personally, yeah, personally, I um, I don't usually do that. I'm not uh, I never got. I was always big into fluid designs, like you know, re allowing the the user to resize their window or zoom their their content and have mm -hmm. it behave appropriately. Um, but I I don't know. There's something with responsive design. I have I, maybe I just haven't gotten there yet. It's a it's a lot more work and it is. Uh, and I suppose it makes. I mean, it does make sense because the breakpoints that people typically use are based on common. Uh, Common com yeah, common device resolutions. Right, so it's like it's like iPhone portrait, iPhone landscape, iPad portrait, iPad landscape. Maybe you throw a little Kindle Fire in there while you're at it. Um, but if you really want, you know, it's getting crazy now with all the new. Yeah, the, last week we talked about that that there was probably going to be a new Kindle announced. And yeah, sure enough, there was. Yeah, now there's a what eight point two five inch screen. Eight point nine. Eight point nine inch screen. Yeah. Yeah, so now we've got a size which will almost certainly be wildly popular. Uh, maybe not iPad popular, but very popular uh, in between the iPad and the Fire, even. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it does make sense to take the approach that like, like the s more smooth transition approach. But, um, but I'm glad that you did have the experience of of starting small and working big being way easier. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's much easier. Yeah. Anyway, so it's like it's just funny to talk about that after going through <laughs> kernel logs. Talk about, yeah. Talk about like a a nice friendly front end responsive design. Yes. <laughs> so wow. Well, what else do we have going on last week? You mentioned um, API documentation. Um. Yeah. I just kind of. Kind of just dealing with the um, and not to not to bash Freshdesk, but kind of just dealing with uh, the Freshdesk API, and it's just I don't know. I I'm maybe I'm just maybe I've spoiled myself, but I miss having good documentation. <laughs> so what's Freshdesk? Uh, Freshdesk is a a support desk software. All right. Okay. Software as a service app, and yeah, just just help desk. Mm -hmm. And I know like their their API, it's a it's a REST API that uses HTT Basic Auth, mm -hmm. and basically you can do your request to the API. You can make a, an API request to anything that you would, like say you would request in in the in the browser when when browsing. So basically you just go to the address you to the the thing you want to do in your web browser. You can, if you want you can copy that API and or copy that URL and, and post to it through their quote unquote API mm -hmm. and which is, which is all well and good because you know, obviously there's, there's consistency there, but 
I, I feel like because it's been done that way, there's there's not a lot of documentation on it because they just assume, oh well, you know, it's it's the same thing. And I don't know, maybe the the app is still. I think Fresh Desk is still fairly new, so maybe their their docs just haven't gotten there yet. But so you're saying that like the URL for the for a given web page, you can. What do you mean? Like, like if you like if you log into the dashboard yep. from the web browser and click on the tickets mm-hmm. link and go to the list of open tickets, uh, if you want to just like go to like through curl at the command line, do a request for that same tickets URL that you go to in the browser, then you can get a response back and get the tickets list in either either JSON or XML format. What's the difference? The accept headers or something? Um. You know, that's a good question. I haven't I haven't tried. Well, yeah, with the XML response, you do have to send the um, you only, you have to send the accept headers on on post and put requests on get requests. It doesn't seem to be that. That's actually a good question. Let me. You know, I wonder. I wonder if I can just tack an XML file extension onto the page in the browser and get an XML file. Yeah, you can just like you can just go to it in your web browser and tack on the file extension and get the. So it's really, I mean, really, I don't. I don't know if you can call that an API. I guess you can, but. Yeah, so that it's funny because back in the day, um, I. I, was, <laughs> I had to sort of, you know, one of those. You know, when you have like a revelation and then like, you start to look into it and you realize that you're like 10 years behind everyone else. <laughs> you're like, wow, I just thought of the coolest idea. And then you, you like Google for it and it's old news to everyone. But yeah, yeah like 2007, yeah. people were doing this. Right. And so I, I remember at one point I was working on a very early, this is very early in my web development career, and I was working on uh, some site and, you know, you're pouring all this data into the pages, right? And I was like, wait mm-hmm. a second, the website is the API and then you know fast forward uh, 20 minutes of googling <laughs> and I'm onto semantic web and RDF and all this other stuff and I was like oh yeah um, and XSLT while we were at it and there's like a million a million people fought at length about how that should work yeah and I I don't think that um you know how we have a conversation, we've had conversations before about how your the API is kind of like your app. Yeah. And then you have other client apps that you write that, that talk to it. So you've got like two different apps talking to each other. Right. And to me, the as soon as you start to have um, a GUI, which would be the HTML version, that's a client. And I suppose the distinction is a little bit arbitrary, but the... Um, but I think there is one important difference between uh, a website and the data, you know, an HTML. I think there's an important difference between returning HTML and JSON, and that is that the marketing department cares about the HTML and they don't care about the JSON. <laughs> so yeah. the marketing department might tell you to change something about the HTML that you don't want to change in the JSON. And to me, right there, that says, you should not make them be have the separation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah, my this, feeling on that. This doesn't really, this doesn't really feel like interacting with an API. It just feels like just, just making requests with curl to a web page. It's like making screen scraping easy for people. Yeah. 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 But you know, it does, it does support rest verbs for you know, 
post and put and delete and, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah. The, yeah the, anyway, my, my point I was getting at with the whole thing is, um, I don't know. I just, I've, I've been spoiled by the, the, the detail and level of, of documentation that we've been doing. Yeah. And you know, maybe it's, I don't know. It kind of just, again, kind of goes against, or with what I was saying, I guess maybe, maybe a couple weeks ago about you know, discoverability and self-documentation of APIs. Mm-hmm. And even even if you, you have some of that baked in, still, it's, I, just, I, I just like being able to go somewhere and look up documentation. Mm. Yeah, so back, let's back up a little bit, because I'm not sure if we talked about this in the podcast or we just talked about it. But the, the sort of it, what is at issue here is whether or not your API should be self-documenting and, you know, whether documenting an API in something like Happy Docs is redundant. Um, and I can see both sides of the argument because the, the documentation you do in something like Happy Docs is technically could be misleading. It might not be the reality. It could be old or just flat out wrong. But there's a, there's a, I think two really strong arguments for doing static documentation, if you will, um, uh, on an API, even if the API is also self-documenting. And the the two arguments really are: first of all, I think you should do the document. This was actually this is actually your point, which is that you should do the documentation first anyway before you even start coding. You know, right? Because you have a good a good plan, clear plan of what you want to build. Yeah, it's. I mean, if nothing else, it's a spec doc. Right. So that's one thing. Um, and, and the other thing is there's a point in the sort of, like you said about discovery, like in the life cycle of, of uh, an API where you need, or it's extremely helpful from a decision-making standpoint to have like a 30,000-foot view of the API <laughs> and not have to be like hunting around underneath rocks to find out like, you know, what does what does this and what does that and what all is possible. You know what I mean? Right, right. There's there's certainly a lot to be said for the the sort of self-discovery of a of a, a well-designed API where you can kind of follow things through and and go through it that way. And you know, again there there's something to be said for it, in in it can in a lot of ways make application development easier, especially if your API changes a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's it's nice that you can maybe look up something without having to go, you know, leave the the development environment you're in, kind of deal. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there there are going to be users that need to need to look at the capabilities of your API to make, you know, maybe make a purchasing decision or yeah. decide if it's gonna if it's gonna meet their needs. And then there there are also going to be users that are going to want to do your your <laughs> Use your API to do things that are, you know, they're not going to want to do, like like for a help desk, for instance, they're not going to want to manage, fully manage tickets. They're not going to want to create new, you know, maybe they don't want to create new tickets or update tickets or, you know, maybe they just want to get a list of, of ticket subjects, of the subjects of open tickets kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And for for something like that, they shouldn't need to to drill down through four or five levels of documentation to get to the one thing they want to do with your API. Right. 
and maybe it's worth describing like what the self-documentation, at least as we understand it, uh, what what that looks like. Because people like a lot of a lot of times before I sort of heard about this, I would have thought self-documenting was like, you know, in the code you'd you'd use very um, specific variable names and function names and that and self-documenting in that sense. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're not we're not talking about self-documenting code. Um, the the idea is that when you make a request to the API and you get an API, you get an object returned by the API, then along with that object, you also get links to other URLs that can act upon that object. Right. So you do it. Let's say you do a get for a particular ticket, and you could say, you know, and then it'll have a bunch of other API links right there that are like, oh, you know, uh, delete this, update this, change the status. These are all the these are all the actions that you can take on this uh, object so I've never <clears throat> and there's a there's actually an acronym for this which is Hadios which I like I think it should be a dev serial <laughs> um, it stands for uh, yeah. it stands for hypertext as engine the of engine application of, state yeah. and it's um, it's it's kind of like taking rest to its logical conclusion and I don't think it's a bad thing, but I've never seen it implemented anywhere. I haven't either. Well, I take that back. I have one place. <laughs> yeah. Does it when when those when those come back? Like, what does each? If you've seen one, how, how does it indicate the verb? I don't know. I didn't get that far into it. Yeah. See, it's like it's like I w I was just told this is this is the way we're doing it, so we're not documenting. Yeah. We're documenting in here. I mean, yeah. like I said, I think both are good. But exactly, yeah. Uh, but if I had to pick one, it would be static documentation, and that's. I mean, maybe that's a bad decision, but that's that would be my decision. I think that's the decision that's going to going to reach the largest audience. Like, for instance, look at Twitter. Twitter is going to have well, maybe not so much now, but <laughs> <laughs> Twitter, you know, Twitter is going to have. You know, everybody wants to display a tweet on their web page. You're going to get a lot of people that want to display a tweet on your web page on their web page that have no clue what a REST API even is. Right. You know, they just they just want to put a tweet up there. And so it's it's like one get API request. You know, they they shouldn't have to dig through you know, to to find out how to do that. Yeah, you don't need to read Roy Fielding's thesis to. Right. Post a tweet on your page. So, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's one of those things where I, I think pragmatism should really win out. But the the flip side, the argument against would be that if you were going to, if you had the resources to only do one style, then the the flip side of the argument is that uh, that with the um, Hadios style, uh, they're delicious with milk. Um, they, I like a little strawberries cut up. <laughs> yeah, sorry, go ahead. The the real power of that is that you don't have to version your API. It's it's you know in theory it's self healing because you you can if people aren't because people aren't calling your um, people aren't hard coding any of your URLs. Right. <clears throat> You're sending URLs back, and presumably they'll store those in a variable, and then they'll you know, they'll create a request at 
the pointer inside the variable and they don't care what the it, it, what ends up happening is it makes your URL structure irrelevant and it makes versioning irrelevant. I have to imagine that there are changes that you could make that would at least, well, no, I guess not. I mean, as long as presuming you don't remove anything. So if you have, if you return a ticket resource and it has uh, essentially uh, update and delete options on it. Um, you could change the URLs for those all day long. And if people built their clients properly, big if, to not point directly to your delete URL, uh, you know, delete being the verb and the URL being the representation of the resource, then um, it wouldn't matter if you changed it and pointed the thing to a completely different place. They would just be storing that value in a variable and then they would go to that the contents of the variable and you could change that as you updated your uh, API yada 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 so the, to me the, I don't know there's, there's just too many ifs in in there I like the I like the sort of absoluteness of the URL this URL does this right I like I like the theory behind it and in a closed system I I feel like it could work well like a closed system that's that's rapidly changing, mm -hmm. I feel like it would be a good decision. But if you're talking about any kind of public API, I just I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's not as many as many problems as it solves. I feel like it creates others in terms of of ease of use by by the general public that's going to consume your API. Yeah, I mean, it's su supposed to provide reliability, and I feel like it does the opposite. But maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, I get the point. Theor in, in theory, I get the point, and it is a good one. But I don't think, I mean, maybe we'll get there where, you know, I two years ago, I wasn't, I thought everything was a REST API, you know what I mean? <laughs> and... And then having gone through a sort of learning curve with that, I see that uh, some of the things, uh, virtually everything I resisted early on ended up being uh, a mistake and was making it harder for me to see how awesome REST APIs were, you know? So yeah, I, I feel like it's good. I feel like, I feel like in, in ways it can provide more reliability and more flexibility, but I feel like it seriously raises like, the barrier to entry. Definitely. Uh, I, I definitely think that's true. But the thing that alarms me is that I feel like it it doesn't, it breaks what it's for, which is, you know, I don't know. Again, it's it's one of those things that maybe, it, maybe if I did a project with it and it was like, oh my God, I'm never going back type of thing. But <laughs> yeah, I have to see it in action first. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the other thing is I've never, I don't, you just don't see it. So that tells me that it's either really hard or it's or it's or it's not really hard, but it's still not worth it. Yeah. Or maybe there is the possibility that just people just don't get it and developers don't API developers don't get it and they don't see the value. But I don't know. Maybe it'd be, it'd be I, I would like to see an implementation somewhere and get a feel for it and be like, wow, this is super convenient and it's going to save me if they ever change the API because I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. What do you think about? You mentioned earlier that it's um, uh, HTTP auth. 
Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think about that? As opposed to the sort of thing we've been doing, where you authenticate once and then get an auth token back and and pass the auth token back and forth. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know that I really have a preference. Um. So you're acting. It's the thing that the thing that. How do you get the the login credentials? Like, are they just for your account? Yeah, yeah, they're just the login credentials for your account. So if you were, so a third party couldn't really make a client. Like, you basically, it's it's just for you to make your own client, right? Without you, right? Well, you, you could really give, have a third party. Yeah, you without giving them your login credentials, right? So that's interesting. Yeah, but whereas where we're doing it, you know, a third party doesn't have to store your login credentials. You can make one auth request and then they can get an auth token back and store that token. Right. And the other thing is with with um, basic auth, there's, I suppose they could be doing something clever. I don't know, like, could they, there's no, I'm trying to think how that would work in terms of, um, like expiring, there's there's no expiring sessions. There's no session no, at all. No, there's so no session. Totally stateless. Eh, I, I I kind of like it. The the I actually I definitely like it, but I feel like it's you run up against a brick wall really fast in terms of um, third party clients. Third party clients. Yeah, it's like all of a sudden you know somebody's you know like a, the way Twitter works. Um, where it's integrated with all these other services, then you don't want to be giving out your password to everybody. Right. You just want that OAuth token. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I, I've seen. Uh, I think the Bitly API does. Um, they do that. You can go into your account and generate an app key mm -hmm. that you hand out to a third party, which is essentially what OAuth does. But OAuth has a little bit of a workflow for it, so that you know you can you can have that sort of familiar workflow of authorizing another um, service to act on your behalf, like PayPal and, and Facebook, you know, Facebook Connect, all that stuff. So, mm, I don't know. I just feel like using basic auth is like for a service that's like trying to, you know, it's not just like a little thing for some dude's personal use. It seems like a little bit like that's going to be a very limiting decision. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I also saw somewhere in Freshdesk where they had uh, API keys, but I'm not seeing it now. And I, you know, there there certainly wasn't anything in their API documentation about it. Mm. So that might have might have been something else I was looking at. Yeah, and if it's not obvious to the listener, like the the problem is if you get like a third party application. Let's say you you back in the day. Let's say when Twitter first uh, came out and you said, oh, you know what? I want, um, I don't know, Groupon to be able to post to my account every time I uh, view something or whatever. And then <clears throat> the only way to do that is to give Groupon your username and password for Twitter. So obviously that's a bad thing. And, and the, the other thing is on Twitter's side of the fence, they don't realize that they can't tell the difference between when Groupon's doing something in your timeline and when you are. So if Groupon, you know, starts spamming your feed or goes rogue or whatever, the only thing you can do is go in and change your password. Um, 
so then the next time Groupon tries to post your, your Twitter feed, then they're going to get uh, access denied. But if you have a bunch of third-party clients the way Twitter does, then you've now broken all of them. And you not, then you have to go around and uh, you know, re-give out your new password, which, of course, like I said, is a bad idea in the first place. Because now you're storing a, your password in plain text in a whole bunch of, like, it has to be in plain text. Yeah. Uh, in all sorts of web databases all over the planet. So Yeah, it's either, it's either plain text or, and some kind of decryptable Decryptable string. Hash. Yeah, right. Yeah, it doesn't, right. I shouldn't have said plain Right, text. it's not, it's not, it's encrypted, not hashed. Right. So, you know, bad idea. So, eh, interesting. Well, like you said, they're new, so maybe they're, it, it, basic auth is really an easy way to get going fast, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've, we've used it in the past on some things, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not public-facing <laughs> apps. <laughs> I don't think. So, anyway. Um, wow, this is, a, this, is a good, this is a good week. We've got kernel logs, got responsive web design, adaptive images, REST APIs, yeah. And my favorite, Hadios. Yeah. We're covering all bases here. Yeah. And uh, you know what else I have? What? I have a giant tub of silly putty. <laughs> when you say giant, are we talking hot tub? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, like six ounce ball of silly putty. Oh, okay. So not, not huge, but not a little egg either. <laughs> Too much to comfortably chew. <laughs> <laughs> you chew your silly putty? Not comfortably. <laughs> no, I don't know. This is this is maybe maybe worth mentioning because mm-hmm. I feel like we're probably not the only ones that deal with it. Um, I know you had some problems in the past with your hands. Yes. And a lot of typing. Yes. And and lately I've been dealing with this, and I went to a couple of doctors and had a had a few tests done to check for nerve damage and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. which was a really weird test. Right. <laughs> Yeah, they just basically hooked me up to ele- electrodes and zapped me with a 300-watt electrical current through my arm. <laughs> cool. Did you talk? Yeah. Did I talk? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> you will talk. You will talk, yeah. They gave up a few secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, anyway, what it, what it all came down to is um, a diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome in my right hand, right wrist. Mm. And I, I did a blog post about it because they, they came up with some interesting things. Um, of course, you know, there's, there's no real cure for it except to do surgery to release the nerve. Right. But um, they did, did have some suggestions for things I could do to manage it. And it seemed to be, seemed to be working well. And there's a couple of, couple of things that were interesting. And the first was that they gave me some wrist stretches to do that kind of help with the, relieve the compression. Mm-hmm. And so those those I started noticing pretty pretty quickly from that a big relief in the numbness that I was having. And then the also this is the thing that I found the most interesting. And apparently apparently it's common with carpal tunnel syndrome is that I've had some muscle loss in my hand. And so she said that the the hand doctor that I spoke to said that um, part of the part of the pain that I was having in my hand was probably due to just lack of you know lack of, of muscle strength rather than you know n- compressed nerve pain. Mm-hmm. 
because hmm. it just it didn't sound to her like the type of pain that would result from a compressed nerve. Interesting. So so yeah, that's that's why I have the giant ball of silly putty. Oh, <laughs> it all comes around. In yeah, the end. yeah. There was there was a method <laughs> to my madness. Uh, I thought you were making gigantic, uh, funny like paper newsprint. reproductions. Yeah. yeah, funny paper reprints. Yeah. So, no, oh, well, that's interesting. So I also was given stretch exercises when I was, the last time I was writing a book, I was having real bad problems with it. So first, I it became a problem when I was in college. I went to music school and was playing guitar like 18 hours a day, and that pretty much almost destroyed my <laughs> my hand. It yeah. almost destroyed my career, but my lack of talent ended up doing that. <laughs> um, but, the, but then when I, uh, and then it, it, it it was one of those things, like you said, it's, it's, it sounds bad, but if you, you can manage it by just, you know, laying off, uh, yeah. more or less, but sometimes you can't lay off. And, um, you know, like when I was writing the last book, uh, I was having real problems and same thing. I got stretching exercises, which I, I'm curious if they're the same ones, the ones that I was supposed to do where you hold your arms out in front of you and put your hands up, like you're, you know, trying to tell a car to stop. Mm-hmm. And you just hold it there for like eight beats and then point straight out, point your hand straight out and then point yep. it straight down. Yeah. And if nothing else, uh, it got me to stop typing every 15 minutes or so to stretch. I'd set like a little alarm. Right. And if nothing else, I was it was giving my hands a, sh- a switch. Right. Giving them a break. If, if not a workout, at least giving them a break. Yeah. But no one ever told me about. Are those the same stretching exercises? Yeah, yeah. I, I found that it that it did provide relief very quickly, and it. Um, but no one gave me. Uh, no one mentioned exercises. That's a good idea because I'm writing a new book and it's already starting again. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, get a get a giant tub of silly putty. You can you can get well, get the, you can get the six ounce tubs off of Amazon for like six bucks. <laughs> the silly putty big gulp. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So I think um, I'd like to talk about one more thing before we wrap up. Did you have mm-hmm. other? No, no, that's it. Cool. So the so the the thing I wanted to talk about is the um, we talked about it last week, um, and I just kind of want to. I guess I just want to follow up on it because I've been getting asked by a bunch of people. Um, you know, like, I, when was it? I don't know when it was, but you posted a link to a tweet about it today where Mark Zuckerberg was interviewed, uh, I think at All Things D or Deconstruct, um, about their shift from uh, uh, basically PhoneGap style HTML5 native apps for iOS and Android over to pure native apps on iOS and Android. And, um, you know, as one of the people who, who, when Facebook first was, you know, all in on HTML5, I was like, look, it, it, look, even Facebook's doing it, <laughs> you know, and, um, and now that they're not doing it, I feel a little bit hypocritical because I'm saying, yeah, but you're nothing like Facebook, so don't do what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm sure that sounds hypocritical, but I have a point, which is that that taking the HTML approach to having multiple clients is not about, there's a couple of things going on. And I suppose I should start off by saying, if I didn't say it last week, is that I have nothing against native clients. 
if you want to, if you want to build native clients all day long, I do, that's great. If you've got the time and energy and resources to build native clients for everything, in addition to uh, a really nice web experience and you can make them all consistent, then go for it. Um, but the vast majority of companies cannot afford to do that. Uh, Facebook can uh, afford to do that. So it makes sense for them to do that because it will create, I mean, native will create a better experience um, than, you know, side by side, A-B testing, a phone gap app next to a native app. You're probably going to be able to tell the difference. I'd like, I'd love to say that there's no way you could tell or that if you, you know, wrote an amazing app that you couldn't tell. Uh, and certainly with simple apps, you maybe could get there. But for, a, for an app like Facebook, it's a very complicated app, which if you ask me, maybe tries to do a little more than it should. But uh, it's a complex app, and you're, you're never going to get um, full fidelity HTML version. So, um, the, but the, there's a, a little, I snuck a little secret into that statement, which is that, that it's required, as far as I'm concerned, it's required before you do a native app that you have a good mobile web experience. So if you have to choose between doing a native app and doing a mobile, a very nice mobile web app, you know, that's accessible in a browser, then I urge you in virtually every case to do, to pick the web one. Yes, I agree. Once you've done that, now you've got all this HTML that you probably worked fairly hard on. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's it's I think more valuable. Once you've done that, then it makes sense to take you know the next the next quick step, the next uh, cost effective step would be to um, wrap that in PhoneGap. If for some reason you wanted to be in the App Store, or if you wanted for some reason to access the camera or something you can't do in the browser. So the, it's it's you know it's a obvious next step, and it's reasonably cost effective compared to taking a much bigger step, which would be to develop pure native apps for all of the platforms that you want to be on. So, you know, I, I often say if you can build your app with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, then you should. Facebook decided that they couldn't. They couldn't build the experience that they wanted uh-huh. with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And that's, you know, that's fine. So, um, if the, the the thing that scares me is that people see a quote like that and, you know, I, I think his exact quote was HTML5 was a mistake. HTML5 on mobile was a mistake for us. That's the quote that you that I saw all over yeah. Twitter. I yeah, and actually, I think that kind of got truncated a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at, looking at the full version of the quote here. And he said, you know, at the time, HTML5 was a mistake because it just wasn't there yet. And he said... He said, but he, you know, not that he has, he's not against HTML5 and that, you know, that he's excited about it. And he points out that, um, he said, uh, said, uh, so we actually have more people on a daily basis using mobile web Facebook than we have using our iOS or Android apps combined. Yeah. So that, that's it right there. So he can, he can say, you know, I, I haven't seen the quote where he said it was a mistake, but that's what everybody tweeted. And, uh, it, okay, it was a disrupt San Francisco, yeah. So the the takeaway is that if they didn't have the mobile web version of Facebook, they would have less than half of the mobile traffic that they currently have. That's a big, big deal. <laughs> 
especially for a company that's organizing themselves around mobile. Right. There's a there's a big difference in saying we bet too much on HTML5 rather than we shouldn't have used HTML5. Right. You know, he's his his point is more than half of their traffic mobile traffic is on the the HTML5 mobile website. But you know that he that the the mistake was relying entirely on that rather than providing an enhanced experience with a native application in addition to that. Right. So it, then there is the there. I've seen other people levy the argument that they could have done a better job with the actual HTML app. So I that's I don't know how they could possibly know that. You know, in other words, saying that the code quality could have been better, and I, I don't think that's. It's sort of neither here nor there to me because no matter how good the code was, it's never going to be that for the particular. I'm talking about a specific app, the Facebook app on mobile, the on iOS, for example. If it's it's got a lot going on, and to render or sort of build that design with JavaScript would be <clears throat> super hard. So, you know, they made some concessions with the web app. They took out some animations. They, you know, they but to make it very reliable and fast and obviously very popular. Mm-hmm. You made a good point last night on Twitter, is that you know links don't open apps; they open open browser pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no no website means no sharing. It's like if you want if if you want if you have the kind of app or site that is social or you know you want to encourage sharing, and who doesn't? I mean, that's basically it's become a core feature of the web of apps. Yeah, that's of kind of the mobile. point. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's like you're not playing solitaire on your phone anymore. We're we're like interacting with our network. So sharing is a big deal. Uh, so, and I, if sharing is a big deal to your app, then you know people are going to be sending hypertext links around, and those open websites, not apps. So until that changes, you kind of have to have a website. So to uh, to sort of peel back the onion one more layer, the the I. Th- I think it's important to remember that if you start with a mobile web experience, which I think you should, and then if you move into native experience to add enhanced functionality for one reason or another, then whether you do that with um, HTML, phone gap style, or you do it with a native app, I think it's important to make sure that those two experiences are maybe not indistinguishable, but very, very similar design-wise because people will end up switching back and forth between them on their their particular device and potentially on different kinds of devices. So I, I'm a, maybe a little bit, okay, I'm, I'm a special case, but I can imagine that lots of households, especially with kids, teenagers, have Android phones, have iPhones, have Blackberries, and maybe they're going to have Windows phones. Who knows, maybe Firefox OS, that would be cool too. So if you are picking up this or that phone and you want to use an application then and it looks different on every platform it's a pain it's like this big cognitive load it's uh, irritating it leads to uh, false clicks because you've got this muscle memory like the top right is is the tweet now button but it's now it's something else on this version of the application on android and so my point being is that i think it's it's very important to keep your designs across device buckets so let's say you've got like a a small screen bucket and you've got like a a kindle fire size bucket and you've got an ipad size bucket you've got a laptop size you know device groupings 
it's important within your device grouping and even across groupings, but even w specifically within a device grouping to keep your UI, keep the furniture in the same place at least, make it look pretty much the same. So there are going to be differences, of course, but you don't want to, to feel like uh, it'll be frustrating to users if it's a completely different app and you have to they have to relearn it just to like do something to check their like timeline or whatever so if you if you agree with me dear listener if you agree with that concept then um then it becomes even more pragmatic to do a phone gap approach because you've already done that whole design it's sitting on your website so you know do what you can to package it up and and extend the functionality and enhance the performance in a native app but you know rebuilding all of that from scratch uh with native code is going to be expensive and if you don't have the money to do it then phone gap i think is a really good approach yeah <clears throat> yes i think i think some people kind of misconstrued your quote that you were you were against native Yes, everyone thinks people are blown <laughs> away. Like the that week when I was doing Xcode all week, yeah, everyone was like, "What?" <laughs> I'm like, to me, it's just another client. Yeah, I mean, I don't like Objective C; it bothers me, but it's just not my favorite. But I don't have anything against it any more than I have, you know, I don't know. Against, I can't think of a language I don't really like, but <laughs> <laughs> the ugliest one I use is PHP, and I like PHP so. <laughs> But you know what I mean. It's like it, yeah. that's just a taste thing. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. Um, probably where people get that from is that that I I tell people to learn JavaScript. I think it's a better. I tell developers that if you're going to learn a skill, learn JavaScript. Not yeah, I agree. And it's not because I have anything against it per se. It's just a more, to me personally, it's a more fun place to be. You know, out on and the there web. are more options available to you. Oh yeah. The JavaScript is going to be running the planet. It's our new overlord. <laughs> so, I mean, again, I, I'm a pragmatic guy. It's like if you want to if you want to learn a skill, then, you know, you can learn iOS for sure. You can learn Objective-C, and you could probably make a nice paycheck for a little while. Um, but it's always going to be a smaller, more boutique -y market. I don't care. I don't care what anybody says. It's never going to be as big as JavaScript because Apple won't let it. Apple would have to radically change for them to to like. It doesn't it doesn't even make sense. So, even if Apple let it, I don't think the adoption would. You know, JavaScript has its flaws, but everyone everyone uses it. Everyone knows it. For something else to come in and catch up at this point would be, you know. Yeah. It it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's too late. That'll be. It won't be something similar to JavaScript. If there's the the thing that will take over from JavaScript will be something so like, radically bizarre and new that you know it'll just be a whole new thing. Like we won't be programming for, you know what I mean? It'll be something so weird. It'll be like Corona <laughs> or like something that it is just we can't even predict. You know. So that I mean, your mileage may vary. My two cents, but. Uh, you know, ask 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 Flash developers what it's like to to deal. You know, work with inside of a sort of closed ecosystem. And, oh yeah, and, good point. Yeah, and Flash was a lot more open than iOS. Did you know? I read this the other day. In like, we talked about um, talked about how iCloud 
is I, I think I don't know. I don't know what they'll do. I don't know what Apple's going to do. But iCloud, the fact that iCloud can't be used as a true cloud service for non-iOS devices is mind-boggling to me. You know, it's it's obviously a play to get people to only have iOS devices in their house. It's not it's not for users. It's not to make users' lives better because if it was for if it was for that, then they would open up the API so other devices could interact with it. It's totally a lock-in thing. And maybe, yeah. maybe they'll change that. But but so I, so I was sort of researching that to make sure... I, I actually checked to make sure that I wasn't wrong and see if, like, oh, maybe maybe you can um, interact with iCloud. Maybe there is a, an open API that you can interact with iCloud, and there's some kind of, like, you know, you have to probably create a developer account, but there might be an Android SDK. Who knows? It sounds crazy, but at least I, I figured I should check. So... Not only do they not have SDKs for other platforms, they don't even let Mac developers use iCloud. A Mac de- an Apple Mac developer cannot even use iCloud unless they're selling their app through iTunes. So it's it's specifically for Yeah, that's that's a that's an extreme lock-in. <laughs> right. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious than that. I mean, if I was going to it Honestly, it I understand why they had to do it, but it kind of surprises me that the Apple even allows browsers on their device, a, a, an open web browser on their device. They had to do it at first because there are no apps. Yeah. But now that there are apps, it everyone always jumps down my throat when I say this, but it goes against Apple's business model to have a web browser on their phones. So, and and I started saying this when they were rejecting Firefox and other other browsers, and since then they've let other browsers onto the platform. So, so I you know I admit that I must be wrong, but it it doesn't make sense for them to allow browsers. If they took browsers off, you know everybody that whenever I tweet something like that, if Apple removed the browser from the phone, everyone's like, "You're crazy. Nobody would buy an iPhone." Yeah, and I'm like. If you think long term enough, right? Like I've got a two-year-old. He's got an iPad and an iPod that he has access to on a regular basis. And you turn on parental controls and you shut off Safari. Mm -hmm. And maybe you shut off YouTube. So the kid's going to grow up without the internet on those devices. He's going to grow up using the apps. He's going to grow up using apps. So, you know, by the time he's 16 or however old, kids are when they're allowed to go get their own actual cell phone. I don't know what that age is these days, but it seems to be getting younger and younger. No, I'm, I'm about to buy one for my 10-year-old. Yeah. But only because she's got a trip coming up. We're a, a, an overnight, several-day overnight trip coming up where we're not going to be with her. So mm. I yeah. doubt it will get used outside of that. Right. Well, the thing is, when she goes into the store to pick out a phone with you and she's never used a web browser on a phone because it's been shut off, then do you really think that's going to be a, a key decision factor for her? No. It's yeah. going to be the games that she already uses or the apps that she already uses. And she's going to say, oh, well, does it have, you know, I'm sure it's not Angry Birds, but just as an example, <laughs> you know, does it have Angry Birds? Yeah. Does it have Cut the Rope? Yeah. Does it have Facebook? Yeah. All right. Great. Yeah. That's all I care about. And, and so if you think 10 years out, 
I mean, I don't know. I realize that it's kind of a wild-eyed statement, but it, it I see a, I think it's interesting that there is an inherent um, tension between the walled garden and the open web. So, and I feel like the notification stuff, you know, mm -hmm. the, the statement earlier about links opening apps. Mm -hmm. The how are we sharing those links? A lot of them are either on our Facebook page, on Twitter, or via email. Yeah, through the, we share them through the browser. Yep, and also through um, uh, text messages. And so if you have no browser, yeah. if you have no browser and you have tight integration with the OS in the email client, in the messages client, and in the notifications panel to open up apps when a link yeah, comes it, in. Yeah, it, it could certainly be done. Yeah, they could make an end run around the browser and just inspect the application. So they, they get an HTTP thing for you know to Facebook.com. The OS looks on the device and says, "Oh, I've got I've got a Facebook app here." Yeah, or it doesn't, or you know, maybe you get a link. Oh, you don't have an app to open this. Buy one for ninety nine cents. Exactly. Yeah, like back to the days when you had to install Word to like open up an attachment from someone. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't. I don't, I cannot imagine that that will ever come to pass, but I see little, little like sparks of ideas that seem like they're coming out of Cupertino to like try and wrest control back from the web to create a, a cleaner version of the web Yeah, that's under their control. Yeah. Like, like integrating Twitter into the OS. Yep. Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. And you have to wonder if some of the reason that Twitter is now locking down so many things is because they've got this this deal with this this level of OS integration with Apple. Mm. Yeah, who knows. And iOS 6 can have Facebook in there the same way. Right. Dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Open's going to win. Yeah. It's, it's or I should say they're both going to win, but Open's not going to get not going to get pushed out. So, I mean, because Apple's never going to build an iCar or, you know, I think we talked about last week. They're not going to build iCarpet. They're not going to build <laughs> toasters. And the alternative is to have manufacturers create toasters that, you're, that can talk to your iPhone or your iPhone yeah. plugs into. But that's going to get old. Yeah. Know? Oh, I don't have my phone on me. I can't run my laundry. Yeah. No, Apple's, Apple's going to stay with the um, sort, of, sort of high end, you know. Device, mobile devices they're not going to get into the the everyday things that apple's apple's idea is to create a product and then make it an everyday thing not create a product out of an everyday thing <laughs> yeah right yes that's a really yeah i like that cool well so I probably we we probably shouldn't even be talking about it because they're going to be announcing like the iPhone five today. Yeah, and they'll probably be like, and iCar. Yes. <laughs> you, know? you know, just lay this on your carpet. And yeah, I feel like every week I'm just like proven utterly wrong about at least one thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it reminds me. After we get done here, I have, a, I have a very funny story about being proven wrong to share with you. Oh well. It's it's too long to include in the podcast, sadly. Well, well, I'll leave the tape rolling if it. Uh, a, a, if, a tale, a tale of a tale of watermelons. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, well, it's, I, I can't wait now. <laughs> Don't want me to oh, oh, did you want me to actually tell yeah, you now? Yeah, go oh, ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, so my, my father and stepmother are raising my, my two nephews and, and niece. And um, <clears throat> anyway, they, my, one, of, one of my nephews the other day, uh, I guess a couple of months, a few months ago now, yeah, was eating a slice of watermelon. And he dug all the seeds out of the watermelon slice that he bought from the grocery store and insisted on planting these watermelon seeds. Yeah. And so they had a planter, and you know, my dad dug a few holes in it and let him put the seeds down in it and planted it. And he and he told him, told him at the time that he planted it. He said, "Now these probably won't grow. Usually, you know, watermelons from the store, you can't really grow the seeds." But you know, they watered it and watered it, and he <clears throat> said about a week later, the seeds were like an inch and a half. You know, the, the sprouts were like an inch and a half high. <laughs> And so they, my, my nephews and my stepmother then went on vacation and, you know, my, my dad kept watering the watermelon plants while they were gone. And they came back and the plants were, were too, like too big for the planter. They gotten so big, they're too big for the planter. And so my dad got on the internet and he was looking up, you know, trying to, what, what type of sunlight they needed and that kind of thing. So he could find out where in the yard to transplant them to. Right. So he could transplant these these watermelon plants, and in the process, he came across several articles saying that you can't really transplant watermelons. You just kind of have to plant them where you want them to grow because if you transplant them, they'll die. <laughs> <laughs> so he told he told my nephew he said, "Look, we'll we'll transplant them, but they probably won't live." And so they you know, they got out, they dug the hole in the backyard, transplanted the plants, and instead of dad said a week later there were watermelon vines all over the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> and he told him at the time, I said, well, okay, it also said that usually, you know, plants you get, you know, if they do grow from this, on seeds from the store, they usually don't sprout melons. <laughs> you can it's like, see where this is going. It's like Dread Pirate Roberts. Almost likely kill <laughs> you in the morning. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so it had, you know, it had been a long time. And there, again, there were, there were no melons, there weren't anything. So... Like last week, my dad's getting ready to mow, and he says, "Well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and just cut down these these watermelon vines and 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 mow over them and be done with it, get, get the yard cleaned up." And so he was you know, going along in the riding mower, and all of a sudden he hears this chunk, <laughs> <laughs> and he looks down and he sliced the top off of this melon. Oh my god! So he told my nephew to come out and start digging through the vines and see if he could find any others, and he found three melons. Wow! It's got you know one of them. You know, none of them were very big, but he found one that was about uh, about the size of a large football. Wow, that's pretty big. Yeah, that's pretty big. And so, you know, he's got a he's got a picture of him holding this melon with this big, huge grin on his face. <laughs> Said it, it wasn't any good, but you know, he was just uh, this this little boy was just tickled that he he grew a watermelon. Yeah, that's awesome. So, as like, Dad, quick, tell him those vines aren't going to start sprouting hundred dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk or something. Yeah. Oh, that's it's, hilarious. It's funny because it's, I think that is the most wrong I've ever heard my father be in my entire life. Yeah, it's awesome. It just like repeatedly. Yeah. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. See you later. Bye.